Let's pray again. Father, we come as your people on your day to hear from you from this your word. So give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, hands and feet to obey. For Jesus' sake, amen. The book of Proverbs is generally exhortations given from Solomon to his son, a king teaching his beloved child the things that matter most. Thus, the book often contains affectionate exhortations and appeals. For example, verse 19, hear my son and be wise, or else verse 26, my son, give me your heart. But these exhortations and appeals are intended for all of us today, and that for at least two reasons. First, Solomon spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This means it was always God's intent to preserve these sayings for all people in every generation. And secondly, Solomon spoke as a wonderful type of Christ who lovingly exhorts and appeals to his spiritual children. Thus, when Solomon says, My son, give me your heart, verse 26, these words should ultimately be traced back to the mouth of our beloved Savior. And so, verse 23 is one of many exhortations of Solomon, typical of Christ, to his beloved son. My son, buy the truth and do not sell it. Or as the old King James has it, buy the truth and sell it not. So I have four heads, and uh, some of them we're going to go through a little quicker than the others. First, what is the truth? Secondly, how is the truth bought? Thirdly, how is the truth sold? Because our text says to buy it and sell it not. And then finally, and more quickly, how should the truth be bought? First of all, we have to answer the question, what is the truth? Now, let me begin by saying the fact that we're to buy the truth implies that there is, in fact, something called the truth. And Brother Eric made reference to this earlier. We live in a day when the truth is denied. You have your truth, I have my truth. He or she has their truth. But notice Solomon doesn't say buy a truth. He doesn't say buy your truth or his or her truth. But he says to buy the truth. You see, brethren, our text does speak to the fact that there's an objective revelation from God here identified as the truth. And so the question that we want to answer under this first head is, what does Solomon mean by the truth? Well, let me start in a more narrowed sense, and then I want to broaden the answer. So we want to start, first of all, by saying he means the book of Proverbs. In the first place, by truth is meant the teaching that he was giving his son throughout the entirety of this book. Verse 23, by the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. That is, buy the truth and sell it not, and in obtaining the truth, whatever it means to buy it, we'll get to that in a second, but in obtaining the truth, you will also get wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So it's not that the truth here is something opposite or in addition to these other things, If you buy the truth or if you obtain the truth, you will get from the truth wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Put another way, if you want wisdom, instruction, and understanding, then it's imperative that you buy the truth. Or, perhaps we can put it another way, you can only have these three other things if you buy the truth. Now, if you go just a chapter or so back to chapter 22, verse 20, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? In other words, here, 
Solomon is instructing his son in such a way that he may be able to instruct others who make application to him. But notice how Solomon equates excellent things, verse 20, with the words of the truth. In other words, Solomon understood in some degree what he was writing were excellent words of truth. And so we find in the first place, as we're trying to ascertain what exactly Solomon meant by the truth, he certainly meant in the first place the Proverbs that we call the Book of Proverbs or the collection of Proverbs that we now refer to as the Book of Proverbs. But secondly, the Old Testament scriptures. By this I mean Solomon understood that his writings were equal to other Old Testament writings that are called the truth. Solomon understood to some extent that he wasn't making up something that's contrary to the other books of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that he was writing in harmony to um, other books that collectively would be eventually called the Old Testament scriptures. Thus, his father David wrote back in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Not just the book of Proverbs, not just the Psalms, but the entirety of the Old Testament revelation. This is in part what Solomon exhorted his son to buy and sell not, the law and the prophets, the writings. All the 39 books that we now speak of as the Old Testament scriptures. But thirdly, the Old and New Testament scripture. And I say this not because Solomon knew the New Testament scriptures. Obviously, he's writing a thousand years B.C. But the New Testament scriptures themselves identify themselves as the truth and equate themselves with the writings of the Old Testament. For example, think of these words of our master in John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, let me just say before I even continue quoting that verse, that Jesus is specifically speaking to his apostles. And it's a promise that has, in the first place, reference to the Spirit's work of inspiring them to author what we now call the 27 books of the New Testament. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not like this, these books that you're going to write under divine inspiration are going to be in contrast to the Old Testament. No, they're going to be equal to them. Yes, they're going to elaborate on them in many uh, cases and places, explain them, but the same spirit of truth that was in the Old Testament writers is promised them so that they too can write letters and the Gospels which would be equal in authority and infallibility to the Old Testament scriptures. When the spirit of truth has come, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. You're going to write down, under the inspiration of the Spirit, in total, 27 books. And that combined with the 39 books of the Old Testament, the entirety of your word is truth, will comprise the full body of the revelation of God for his people called the truth. So we find that Paul says, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.15, if I'm delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, we know from Ephesians 2, for example, that the church is built upon the foundation of the truth. That's what Paul means when he says that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. He means the truth, the revelation that they would give, Jesus' word would serve as the foundation, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. So we're built upon the truth, but here Paul uses a different imagery. The church is not only built 
on the truth, but there's another sense in which she upholds it. It doesn't mean she creates it or even invents it, but she proclaims it. She's a light on a hill. She alone has the truth invested to her, entrusted to her, and she's to protect it, and she's to proclaim it. So there is a truth. There is what our text says, the truth. And it's this truth that Solomon exhorts us in our text to buy and sell not. Thus, I want to say that by the truth is meant the scriptures. In Solomon's day, it meant the book of Proverbs and that which came before. It implied that which came after in the prophets, Old Testament prophets, as well as the gospels and the letters. This is the truth upon which the church rests, and it's also the truth that the church is to proclaim. And this is the truth that we're to buy and sell not. So by truth, I mean the whole scripture. But I want to hear speak more specifically because there are certain aspects of truth that are all, always despised or challenged in any given era. So specifically, I want to point out eight things very quickly. Not at the, to the exclusion of everything else. Buy the whole 66 books and sell it not. That's what the text means. But let me be perhaps a bit more specific and relevant and suggest, first of all, buy the truth of the scripture. And by this I mean buy the truth about what the Bible says about itself. The scripture testifies that it's the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of God. It tells us it's the truth. Brother, we don't need anything to supplement it. We don't need anything alongside of it. All we need is the scriptures. We need the Bible. But by the truth, first of all, about scripture, secondly, creation. This, of course, is a relevant topic, isn't it? We live in a day when six literal day creation is, is denied. But brethren, buy it and sell it not irrespective of any opposition you might face. The scriptures teach us, without any shadow of doubt, God made the heaven and the earth in six literal days. We did not evolve from monkeys. If you think about it, because man doesn't want to believe the truth, remember how Paul puts it in the end times? Because they refuse to believe the truth, God sends among them a delusion as a judgment. And I can't help but think that this is the only explanation as to why so many people in our country, particularly, believe in evolution. Because they fail to believe the truth, so God sends to them, in a judicial judgment, a delusion. He allows them to believe the lie. Brethren, there's no other explanation for it because, quite frankly, Darwinian evolution is nonsensical. And yet everybody believes it. Because they refuse to believe the truth, God gave them over to believe a lie. But brethren, buy the truth and sell it not. Irrespective of consequences. Salvation. By this I mean salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Furthermore, the fact that man by nature needs salvation is a truth we have to buy and sell not. Man comes forth from the womb of his mother telling lies. Again, and not a very popular truth. But brethren, so what? If it's popular or not, all we need to be concerned with, is it a part of the truth that God has made known to us? God's sovereignty, that is, salvation is of the Lord. God has an elect people. And God sent his son into the world to uniquely and specifically die 
for them. We don't deny that that the atonement of Christ is sufficient for the sin of the world, but it was intentionally efficient for some. And thus God will send the Holy Spirit in time to make application of that atonement to our hearts. In short, brethren, God has a people that he uniquely loves. For sure he loves the world, all men, mankind lost as his creation. Just like I love all the children in our church, I love all the ladies in our church. But brethren, I don't love any woman in our church like my wife. And I uniquely love five children and then four grandchildren. So God has a love for the world. Blessed be God. That's classic Reformed theology. But he has a specific love for a people. Furthermore, with reference to sovereignty, God is in control. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called. Everything happens ultimately because God is fulfilling his sovereign, all-wise, eternal decree. Buy the truth about God's sovereignty and sell it not, irrespective of consequences. Fifthly, the church. And by this I mean, let us buy the truth about the importance and centrality of the church. And this really goes back to much of what we learned in the Sunday School Hour. Today the church is often viewed as take it or leave it. If I don't have anything else to do on Sunday, I'll go to church. But brethren, that's not the mindset of our Reformed heritage. And it's not the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. No, church is central. In fact, so central that our creeds and confession teach that ordinarily outside of the church there's no salvation. That's not a Roman Catholic dogma. That's a Protestant truth. For example, the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, article 2. The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That doesn't mean, brethren, as the Roman Catholics teach, that the church itself contains grace and thus salvation. But what it does mean is that Jesus has ordained means through which grace is given. And those means are given, or ordinances, are given to who? The church. The word, the sacraments, that is baptism and the supper. Church fellowship, church discipline, pastoral oversight, all of those are in the church. Brethren, the Bible, quite frankly, knows nothing of a churchless Christianity And it doesn't even know anything of uh, take-or-leave-it Christianity with reference to the church. More authoritative than the Westminster is Paul, who called the church in Galatians 4 and 26 our mother. That's how Protestants have always viewed the church, as our mother, who nurtures us, who feeds us who encourages us, who protects us. Furthermore, with regards to the local church, by the truth with respect to the centrality of public worship. So many churches want to do all kinds of things, but they downplay the public, the public meeting of the church. Felix was talking about in the Sunday school class, a conversation that we had last night about why retain the second meeting on Sunday. Well, not only because Sunday's the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, but if public worship is what the Bible says it is, then why not have two meetings on Sunday? The question really would be, why wouldn't you want to gather? If, if, if the assembly of God's people on his day includes the special presence of Christ among his people, And it's through those means, ordinarily, that he saves and sanctifies his elect. Why wouldn't you want a second meeting? Brethren, the question, the question is not, why do we have to? 
The issue better is, wow, we get to. See, but that's not going to be popular. When you press membership and responsibility upon the people. Pastor Waters, if you just would lighten up a little about membership and responsibilities in terms of gathering with the people that you covenanted with, you might get more families. Oh, I know I would. I've probably lost more families over 20 years on this, over this issue than any other one. You can't join the church if you're not going to come to the meetings unless you're providentially hindered. That's legalism. It's not legalism. That's grand privilege. You get to gather with God's people on God's day to worship him according to his word. What a privilege. Brethren, frankly, put by the truth and sell it not. Irrespective of who leaves. Irrespective of who's offended. Irrespective of who stays. By the truth, sell it not. Sixthly, morality. That is the fact of an objective standard for morality as found in God's holy law. Abortion is, abortion is, a, is murder. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Sodomy is a perversion. Violation of the seventh commandment. Sexual activity outside of marriage is fornication. Again, a violation of the seventh commandment. Buy the truth and sell it not irrespective of consequences. Oh, if you just lighten up, quit telling us we have to obey the law. Quit talking about the Ten Commandments. You'll get a couple more families. But brethren, more important than numerical growth, more important than the pews being, the chairs being filled in, is a good conscience before God and man. Buy the truth. Sell it not. Eternity. That is the the truth about heaven and hell. The first being a place of bliss, the latter of torment. Brethren, it's it's a humbling and sometimes, and in some sense, terrifying truth that the scripture tells us about a place called hell. A place of eternal conscious torment. A place where the wicked will be punished by God in soul and body for all eternity. Friends, the God of the Holy Scriptures is the God who made heaven and hell. And for all eternity, his love will illumine heaven and his health will fume hell. His, His wrath will fuel hell. For all eternity, he'll make known the glory of his love and his justice. That's God. It's the God of Scripture, the God of our fathers. Now, these are not side issues, these eight points. Obviously, there's some things that Christians disagree about, not these. There are Christians who bought the truth who differ on certain issues. I get that. Not these. Some months ago, I think it was probably six weeks ago, I got an email from a local church, a pastor of a local church. And he was asking whether or not I could go out for coffee or for lunch, actually, to get to know me because they want to kind of expand their knowledge of other churches. And he said other Reformed churches because it was a Presbyterian church. But it was the big Presbyterian church downtown. And I've always assumed that it was liberal. You know how cities have those big old beautiful buildings and most of them are liberal. So I thought, well, I checked on the website and sure enough it was liberal. But I thought maybe it was a conservative, maybe they're going to leave that denomination. Or maybe it was the most conservative within that liberal denomination. I wasn't sure. So I said, for sure, we can go out. They said they are going to take me out for lunch, which they didn't. They just bought me some coffee. So we go out for coffee. Two of the pastors came and me. 
And we started with pleasantries. How many children do you have? How long have you been in the church? And then finally, I just came to where the rubber meets the road. Basically, these eight issues. Now, guys, we've had a good talk so far. Thank you for the coffee. But can I ask you some questions? Oh, sure, Mike. Do you believe the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant? Uh, no, not really. Do you believe that in the atonement, the wrath of God was placated? Uh, there are other views of the atonement. Do you believe in the eternality of hell torments? Nah. And of course, at that point, it was very evident that they had not bought the truth. Or if they have claimed to buy it, they sold it. And then as we're talking, Pastor Mary showed up, one of their co-elders. And I thought, guys, I'm just going to speak very plainly. Maybe it's God's sovereign purpose to have us together that you might be challenged to buy the truth and not sell it. But I have to speak frankly, you've sold it. And you're not Christian. And we can't fellowship. Buy the truth, sell it not. Now that brings us to, secondly, how is the truth bought? And here I want to suggest to you that the truth is bought in three ways. Believingly, supremely, and unashamedly. Believingly. And this is, of course, foundational to what it means to buy it. To embrace it for yourself from the heart. When Solomon exhorts his son to buy the truth, he obviously means his son needs to buy it for himself. Solomon had bought it, and his son needs to buy it. Friends, your parents can't buy it for you. Your pastor can't buy it for you. You have to buy it for yourself. It's as if Solomon is saying, I've bought it, I've taught it to you, and now it's time for you to buy it for yourself. Thus, the imagery of buying something underscores the idea of need. You buy what you want and or need. And so those who have come to see themselves in need of the truth, and in particular, a savior, they will buy it. Now, let me show you this very quickly from a text. Look to Isaiah and chapter 55. And notice verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Now here, the prophet is speaking about buying the truth in different with different imagery, he says to come and buy wine and milk and earlier bread. Now, if you go back to the book of Proverbs, for example, in chapter 1 and chapter 9 especially, you have wisdom's feast. I think that's the um, genesis of some of Jesus' parables about the wedding feast. And remember how wisdom has prepared her, her feast chapter 9 in particular, and she sends out her maidens to invite people to come and eat. And to come and eat what? Bread, meat, and to drink wine that she's mixed. These are just beautiful imageries of the gospel. The benefits of the truth as made known to us in the gospel. But notice he tells us to buy them without money. That, I think that means you buy the truth without any merit. All you have to do is to know your need of the truth. And he uses the imagery of being thirsty and hungry. In other words, a person buys the truth who sees that they in and of themselves cannot merit the truth. And here in particular, the gospel feast. 
How do you buy the truth? By faith. You come with an empty hand. You come as a beggar in need of bread. In need of milk and wine. All of the abundance of the grace of God as made known in Jesus Christ our Lord. Secondly, supremely. By this I mean when you buy the truth, we receive it as the ultimate and final authority. As I've already said, we don't buy it as a truth. We don't just buy it and then add it to other truths. Oh, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's actually a friend of mine that uh, is from Holland. And he was, for whatever reason, passing through Canton, Ohio recently. And he stopped and worshipped with us. And then he sent me a text afterwards because I didn't have much time to talk to him. And he said, it was good worshiping with you. It's good to see you again. Good to hear you preaching. And I just have to say, I'm still Christian, but I've been dabbling a little bit with other religions. Taking a little truth from that one, a little from that one, and a little from that one. But that's not buying the truth. Buy the truth. Let me show it to you quickly from the New Testament. Look at Matthew 13 and a couple of Jesus' little parables. He tells a couple parables here beginning at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and notice, buys the field. Now, I can't prove that Jesus has Proverbs 23, 23 in mind in these parables, but Jesus did know his Old Testament pretty well. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, what is meant by the treasure, verse 44, and the pearl of great price? Well, I think it means Christ. The gospel, the truth, the truth particularly of a gracious king who rules over his people benevolently. The kingdom of heaven here is talking about ultimately Jesus' rule in the midst of his people. That takes place in the church. But it's speaking of Christ as king and prophet and priest. It's talking about the gospel of Jesus as made known in the truth. And notice when you realize how much you need the truth and the actual value of the truth, you'll sell everything to get it. That means you'll turn your back on all the lies and you'll willingly endure all of the opposition that buying the truth will entail. And that brings me 30 to unashamedly. By this I mean we're to be willing to endure every kind of mistreatment for the sake of the truth. Brethren, and again, this goes back to our Sunday school hour. And I think Peter's comment or question that he had. We don't buy the truth and flaunt it meanly, crudely, or proudly. Because if we do that, then we never really bought the truth. Because a part of the truth is to be gracious, loving, and humble. But brethren, again, there's something most important, and that is the truth. And if that means we buy it and people leave the church, if that means we have to face the opposition of neighbors, co-workers, and even family members, so be it. Unashamedly. I remember a few years before my daddy died, sitting in his house, with my wife and little kids at the time, four little daughters. And daddy said, don't speak of religion again in my house. And stormed out of the room. And mama started to cry. She says, I just don't think Jesus would have the family divided. Mama, Jesus actually spoke about that. That when you buy the truth, sometimes it does divide families. Now, if I was crude, rude, mean, and unwise, then maybe some of the fault would fall on me. But 
I told daddy the truth with tears and fear and trembling. But it was the truth he hated. And it was the truth my mama hated. And as much as I loved, unfortunately, both now have died. Both mama and daddy, I love something more. And that's the truth. If you're in Matthew 13, I should have told you to stay there. Look over to verse 20. Now, this is the parable of the four hearers, or the four soils. The first three aren't Christian. The fourth is a Christian. Remember, the first one is hardened ground. The second one is uh, stony, thorny, and then the fourth is good. But with reference to the stony ground, notice how Jesus interprets it, verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and straightway receives it with joy. This person's on fire for Jesus. But notice what happens in verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, Straightway, he stumbles. When he begins to face the opposition of the world. You see, this person did not buy the truth believingly, exclusively, and unashamedly. We sometimes used to sing, and we still sing it in our church, but we used to sing it all most often in the city mission. It's one of those great city mission hymns. I have decided. That's not an Arminian song, by the way, because we have all decided. We've just decided because he's made us willing in the day of his power. But do you remember how one of the verses goes? Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Brother, we don't believe the smallest church wins. Some people have characterized us as that. Oh, Reformed Baptists believe that the smaller you are, the more faithful you are. That's, that's a lie. It's a caricature. But you know what we do believe? Truth matters. And we're willing to buy it at all expenses. Let me just say too, by the way, it's not wrong to say that we've bought the truth as made known in our confession. We don't equate the confession with the Bible. No Reformed Baptist has ever done that. Period. I've never seen one, and I've been a Reformed Baptist my whole Christian life. But we believe the confession is an accurate summation of the Bible. So I have no problem saying I've bought the truth as summarized in our 32 chapters. Or else, another way of saying it, I've bought the Bible. The truth as made known in the Old and New Testament scriptures. Do you remember the story that Bunyan told in his Pilgrim's Progress? When Christian and faithful are walking through Vanity Fair, let me quickly quote a section of it. The pilgrim showed little interest in the items displayed for sale, something not at all appreciated by the city's merchants. They did not care enough even to look at them. And when the merchants called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn my eyes away from worthless things. They would then look upward, signifying that the only thing of interest to them were in heaven. One merchant, after observing them for a time, mockingly asked, So, what will you buy? But looking intently at him, they answered, We will buy the truth. And then Bunyan goes on, This gave the people a reason to despise them even more. Some began mocking the pilgrims, taunting them and discrediting them. And they called on others to beat them up. Jesus said, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 
Then he said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Brethren, by the grace of God, January of 1994, I bought the truth. And by that same grace, I'll never sell it. I'll never sell it. We have to hasten. Thirdly, how is the truth sold? Solomon tells us to buy it and sell it not. Well, it's, let me suggest three ways. It's sold either in part by Christians or in full by hypocrites. One, by compromise. By this I mean we bow before the pressures of culture that hates the truth. We sell the truth when we refuse to proclaim any part of it because our present culture rejects it or hates it. This is a temptation every Christian faces. I've faced it. I still face it. And this is the pressure that many people have came to. Men like T.D. Jakes, Joe Osteen, Andy Stanley, and so many more. All of these men have sold the truth and have become famous and rich as the result. But they will regret it. Because there's a high cost in selling the truth. Tragically, these men are like Esau, who foolishly sold his birthright for a single bowl of porridge. And so, too, as these men have sold the truth for temporal goods, they will eventually pass away. What will it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? By ignorance. By this I mean we claim to believe the truth and yet haven't a clue as to what the truth entails. Brethren, it... it it's tragic, but it's, it's a reality. Even in our churches, there's so many people that are just ignorant. How can they sit under solid teaching for decades? Confessional religion, taught lovingly, painstakingly, unashamedly, and then eventually leave it and go to another church that teaches, in many cases, its opposite. It's because they were ignorant. Young people, particularly, buy the truth and sell it not. That means understand it. Learn it. Learn your catechism. Learn the confession. But above all, young people, learn the Bible. Read it. By neglect. By this I mean we can sell the truth in part by ignoring it or failing to give it its proper place. Perhaps think of it like this. If you're not actively embracing and living the truth, you're beginning to sell it. Or else I can put it even stronger. If you're not actively buying it, you are beginning to sell it. Oh, brethren, hold on to it with both hands. Humbly, graciously, lovingly, yes. But absolutely unashamedly. Why? In closing. Well, let me suggest to you a couple of reasons. I think I have three. Three reasons or motives to buy the truth and to never, ever, ever, ever sell it. One, because of its saving power. That is, when we believe it from the heart, it brings spiritual life to the soul. Think of these words of Jesus. You search the scriptures. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the Jews. For in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In other words, it's not the mere possession of the truth that saves you. We all have Bibles. Alas, probably we all have more than one Bible. If truth be told, we probably have ten Bibles in our homes. It's not the possession of the truth. It's the reception of the truth or it's the belief of it that saves And notice how Jesus says that you read about eternal life in the Bible, in the scriptures. But it's these scriptures that testify of me. Remember, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Because the Bible points to him. 
the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, because that's what Jesus is talking about there in John 5 and 39. The whole of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, testify of God's love in Christ. And thus, when the truth, that is the truth particularly about Christ, and yes, everything that he says, because to embrace him is to embrace his word. But the reception of the truth incarnate, God in the flesh, saves the soul. But but the truth not only has power for salvation, but for sanctification. Do you remember how Jesus put it? In the high priestly prayer, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And do you remember how Paul put it in Ephesians 6? Stand therefore having girded your waist with the truth. Now, if you're familiar with that text and, the, and that fuller passage, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 in the Christian's canopy. I like using that old word. It's the old word for armor. Because you find it in some of the classic treatments of that passage, like William Gurnall in his Christian in complete armor. But if you read Gurnall and the best of the exegetes, commentators, there's a, there's a divide as to what truth is meant there. It can mean either the objective truth, the Bible, or sincerity. I think it's best to put them together. It's a sincere embracing of the truth. And then you remember how Paul goes on to say in verse 17 of that same passage, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, the truth isn't something merely that we place on a shelf, but it's something to be used in spiritual battle. This is another motive, or this is the first motive, as to why we ought to buy it. Because sinners need it to be saved. And my friends, Christians need it to be sanctified. Christians need it to be protected How foolish would be that soldier to run off into battle without his loins girded about with truth, without the belt of truth, and or without a sword of truth, the word of God. No, brethren, we have to buy the truth and sell it not because our enemies are too strong for us. We live in a world dominated by lies. And thus we have to gird about our spiritual loins, waist, the belt of truth, and we have to take the word of God. You know, the scripture speaks of itself variously. It speaks of itself as a sword for our enemies. Bread to nourish our souls. Milk and wine to strengthen and gladden the heart. A lamp, a light for our path and feet. By the truth because of its power both to save and sanctify. Secondly, because of sublime content. And here we could spend a long time, couldn't we, talking about the, the glories of the scripture. What book do you know that tells us about man's origin? The origin of the universe. Do you want to know the origin of the universe, young person? Look no further than the truth. You want to know the purpose for mankind? Look no further than the truth. You want to know how to live right with God and to enjoy his bounty and all of the joys and peace that comes from being a Christian? Do you want to know how you go to heaven for all eternity? Well, you look no further than the truth. Where do you read about a being, a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, but the Bible. Where do you read about the second person of the Godhead becoming incarnate and dwelling in our midst? Where do you read about a being so powerful and gracious that he indwells us and enables us to obey the commandments? Where do you read about such a a unified assembly on earth that enjoys the special presence of God where every ethnicity, all the nations of the world come together. Where do you find that kind of unity? Where do you find a book that tells you about the glories of heaven? Brother, we can't even fathom, we can't comprehend what awaits us. All of that's in the Bible and more. Finally, because of its unchanging character. 
People change, opinions change, times change, but the truth remains the same. What was wrong yesterday is wrong today, and brethren, it's going to be wrong tomorrow. What was right yesterday is right today, and it's going to be right tomorrow. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. All flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. forever. People change their opinions. Culture changes its views. But for me and my house, brethren, and this is my prayer for Harbor, for me and my house and for me and, and heritage, Five hours south, and I pray for this church always. We will buy the truth and sell it not. Our Father, we do pray that you'd give us this grace. Yes, all the humility, the love, the patience, all of those graces and virtues that the truth commends and commands. But also, Father, Help us to believingly, wholeheartedly, unashamedly, as individuals, as homes and churches, buy the truth and sell it not. We pray for those today who've never bought it. Oh, Father, we pray today would be the first day that they purchase it. And we pray for those who have bought it, that you'd give us grace never, ever, ever, to sell it. For the good of Zion we pray and the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.